Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. In this episode, hear from Bill Blosser and Susan Sokolblosser as they sit down with David to recount their journey. Enjoy! In April 1971, a mutual friend introduced Ginny and me to Bill Blosser, who is a professor of planning at Portland State University. We met with him in his office and learned that he and his wife Susan had recently purchased property for a vineyard in the Dundee Hills. They invited us to their rented home at the foot of those hills for a memorable May Day party, where we were introduced to the fledgling wine community. David and Diana Lett of the Irie Vineyards were there too. We interviewed Susan and Bill one after another in the legacy lounge of their new tasting room at their original vineyard site on October 7, 2020. I'm so happy to be in this room with all the pictures of your various hairstyles. <laughs> uh, but more important, the pictures of your journey. And I really, as we're doing in these interviews, I really want to focus on the very beginning of this. And in fact, uh-huh. the, the, the time before we met you, before you bought the first piece of property, your family was pretty critical to the success of this winery financially, but mm-hmm. perhaps emotionally and, and with some of the passion coming from them. What was it like growing up in your family in Milwaukee? Was there wine in the family? There was wine in the family, and I, I wish I had access to the bottles that my father had in his cellar. He was had his own company, he was in the leather business, and he went to France every year for La Semaine de Queer, the leather week. And over the years, he became quite an enophile and came back, and this was a time when most of his compatriots drank liquor. Yes. And so it was pretty unusual. I mean, there was wine around, and he found a wine merchant who imported things for him. And he had a cellar of fantastic Bordeaux and Burgundy and German Mosels. And so I grew up drinking these first growths and premier cru that he had. That was my taste. I didn't know anything more about it. But he educated my palate, let's put it that way. And were there formal lessons around wine bottles or casual mentions at the dinner table? Well, when he came home from work, he would always have a glass of wine and then wine with dinner. And he would go down to his little wine cellar and I could go with him and he would tell me why he was choosing this wine and a little bit about it. Uh, So, you know, I had no idea except that I was absorbing this without my realizing it. So I drank wine with on special occasions, particularly 
Um, I wouldn't say I grew up drinking wine every night, <laughs> but um, it was not something that was forbidden. Um, well, far, so, I mean, it was far from that if there was a, a, a culture of yes, wine, in a sense. There was a culture of wine. In fact, I, I can't remember seeing him having a mixed drink. Wow. I mean, that's so different than yeah, for my age. family or... I don't know anybody else whose parents were so focused on wine as, as it yes. sounds like your father was. My mother wasn't, but my father was. And yes, I mean, this was in the 1950s, uh, so relatively unusual. So when we started to a vineyard, um, I had a taste for wine. I had no idea how it was produced. I didn't pay that much attention to labels, except that now when I hear them, I remember what my father loved. Um, and I wish I could be drinking those wines now. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> wow. Moving ahead to Stanford, where you and Bill both went to school. Did you meet while at Stanford? Yes, we met in a class, Jeffersonian and Jacksonian periods. And Bill had just come back from a year in France and was looking very French. And that drew me to him immediately. So we eyed each other over the course of the class. And by the end of it, we were getting together. And was wine the first thing out of your mouth, Bill? <laughs> in fact, when Bill suggested the idea of having a vineyard, I thought he was nuts. I mean, where did that come from? And he can tell you more about that. And actually, I went along because I wanted to support him. I didn't have any better ideas, and it would, it would be an adventure. I didn't really, you know, that swirled around me for the first 10 years, even though I was working in it, I was also had three children from 1970 to 1979. Um, and even though I did things um, and ran the tasting room, etc., it wasn't really until I started managing the vineyard that it, it took. And I became really passionate about our place on the, on, the, on the earth, so to speak. So what I'm getting from what you just said is that up until you, in essence, committed yourself to being the vineyard manager, the passion that was driving this was more Bill's than Absolutely. yours? Absolutely. Did you feel like you were being dragged along or into something that wasn't really where you wanted to go or or did this did there was there some logic to this that you then decided you wanted to get more fully into by becoming the vineyard manager you know that's really a good question i'm trying to recreate how i felt at the time mm. um I remember thinking over Thanksgiving weekends, for example, how nice it would be to do something different than be in the winery selling wine. 
Um, but no, I accepted it. I accepted it. I mean, that's the way I look back and think of it. Yeah. I accepted it, but I wasn't really passionate about it until I felt tied to the land. And then um, we sort of crossed because Bill was experiencing burnout and I was my passion was on the rise and his was on the decline. And that's essentially why I became president. Yeah. Let's go back to that period from graduation from Stanford until 1970. There were a couple of years in there. Where were those spent? And were they with Bill the whole time? Oh, yes. So when we graduated, we actually were not planning to get married right away, um, but ended up getting married right away. Uh, Bill was going to go to graduate school and decided not to, so we decided to get married. And I was... Um, Let's see, right after college, I went to Reed for their Master of Arts in Teaching. And I went to Reed because I had, at that time, there were three options open to women. You could be a nurse, you could be a social worker, or you could be a teacher. And I was a history major and saw an advertisement on the history department bulletin board for Reed for students who had, college students who had never had an education class, which was where most teachers at that time majored in education, which sounds so stupid, but anyway, um, who had never taken an education class but wanted to be teachers. And Reed sounded interesting, so I applied and I was accepted. So went to Reed. Uh, interned at Madison High School, got a job at Beaverton High School. The principal who hired me at Beaverton hired me because I'd been to read, and he wanted somebody who had some creative ideas. Smoked dope. Well, no, not that, but creative ideas for educating. And um, that was me. And then that principal left and went to another school. And the principal who came was very conservative, did not like the ideas that I had, um, which I look back and I think were brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they tried to fire me. And this was a time when the teachers union had was in its very early stages, they defended me, and um, I mean, it became a cause celebre, and um, it was it was really a terrible ordeal for me. I had I look back and I think my public relations were so bad at that time. I could have done all these things if I had been a little more diplomatic instead of just charging ahead and doing my thing. But anyway, they offered to reinstate me and move me to another school. By that time, Bill had applied to the, for the graduate program at the University of North Carolina planning department, planning school, to get his master's of city and regional planning. We went to North Carolina for two years where I worked 
in the private manuscripts collection at, in the basement of the library called the Southern Historical Collection. I thought I was in heaven because Southern history had been my field in college. Oh, wow. And I'd still be there, you know. But anyway, um, it's interesting how things build on one another because my experience there is what led me to suggest to Linfield that they have the wine archives because I realized how important um, early papers can be. So we came back to Oregon because Bill got a job at Portland State um, teaching planning, and I was pregnant, so that was 1970, I guess. And Still no commitment to... It was to- on the way back in our Volkswagen camper driving back to Oregon that Bill suggested, what do you think about starting a vineyard? And that's when I looked at him and thought maybe the miles of driving had taken its toll. So you arrive in Oregon. Right, and we started looking. We rented a house and started looking. Um, The big decision was, did we want to be in California or Oregon if we had a vineyard? Uh, Bill was from California. He knew it well. He made some trips down there. We finally decided, I mean, it was a decision between buying land in a place that had an established wine industry or a place that had nothing but potential. So, being young and foolish, we chose the place with nothing but potential. (laughs) And the funny thing was, we stopped in a real estate office in Newburgh to ask about grape property, and the guy had no idea what we were talking about. The other person, um, but he said, there's this guy over there who's looking for the same thing, and it was Gary Fuquay, who was one of the early vineyardists. And then the real estate agent said, you know, there's this crazy guy up on Warden Hill Road who I think is starting a vineyard. You might go see him. And that was Dickie Rath, and that's how we met Dick. You met Dick before you, before you found the piece of property? I think so. Bill would know okay. what the exact chain yeah. of events would yeah. be. We had gone down to visit Richard Summers in Roseburg. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we did a lot of, I mean, we were two liberal arts graduates. We knew how to do research. We did a lot of research. Um, and we eventually found this beautiful little 18 acres that was a dilapidated prune orchard. Um, the trees had all fallen over in the Columbus Day storm, and we hadn't been here during the Columbus Day storm. It sounded like it had been the year before because people talked about it with such immediacy. Turns out it was 10 years before, but it was so strong, so in people's memory that it seemed like as if it had been yesterday. And that was... The piece on Raymond Orchards, Orchards, right? right. And below that... The time was Route 2. 
Route two? Route two, yes. Wow. You were way ahead of us. We were road 102 or something. <laughs> you found this piece of property. You were still living in Portland at that point? Yes. We were living, we're still in the rented house. Um, and in fact, I was very pregnant because we signed the deed on the property and had our first child in December 1970 within two weeks of each other. Wow. Life-changing. Yeah, in yeah. so many ways. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> At some point, you had met Diane Lett, too. So we moved out to... Um, the rental the, house at the... The rented a house, $100 a month. And it was a big old house uh, across from a turkey farm, which and the turkeys at that time um, were outside most, all, all year. There were no sheds. And um, they smelled. Yeah, Let me I was going to say. They smelled, particularly during the hot summer. But, uh, and it was a very drafty house. We had cats and we would have the, there was a window above our bed, a long window, and we had it open at night during the summer. And I remember more than once, our cat would leap in through the window with a big gopher in its mouth, right over my head. You know, I would wake up just to see this. What, what gift was coming in? That's right. <laughs> so they, they just taste better inside. What can I say? <laughs> um, so that's where I learned to farm. Um, I had a big garden. And to show you what, how on farmer I was, I had a burpee catalog. And I just ordered all the seeds that looked so, I mean, they looked beautiful in the catalog. And I'd plant them, or I wanted to plant them, and the instructions said, plant in full sun. Um, or I read someplace that you should plant in a new moon or in a full moon. And I wondered whether that meant you wait until the moon is out and then you plant. I mean, I just, I took it literally, you know. Anyway, um, that was my first introduction to farming. Bought the property and oh, okay. we started <clears throat> because started it was clearing it because yeah. they were right next door right. and um, Diana actually kept Nick um, who was three years old when I went to the hospital in the middle of the night with Alex wow. when, he, when he was born 1974 the very beginning January 1974. Um, so we saw each other. Uh, we never became good friends. Our lives were both so taken up with our own families and so forth. But um, 
We certainly were friendly, and it was nice to have someone next door. Well, and she remembers at least two different trips to Contemporary Crafts Gallery. Ah. One of them was with you, I believe. Uh-huh. But that must have been after we had met Bill at Portland State, and then the two of you invited us and at least the Letts and perhaps others to a May Day event in 1971, uh, where we we were just totally in awe of the people there because these were this was the wine industry, and you were responsible for introducing us. Oh my goodness, David! No, I mean it was incredible for us, and wow. and um, sometime after that, you and Diana went to Contemporary Crafts and saw Jenny there, and. Um, but it's interesting that that Ginny and Diana sort of became, I, I think Diana became Ginny's role model in some ways um, because she'd gone through all of this. Yes. <clears throat> and... Um, yeah, at, she was the wise one. Yeah, yeah, she had two years on... Right. Yeah, or right. six or whatever. So contemporary crafts reminds me of something because... During the decade of 1970s, um, while I I did a few different things when I wasn't, before we actually had a winery and the tasting room, I did macrame and did big macrame hangings and actually sold some at Contemporary Crafts. So that may have been one reason we went. Um, I taught needlepoint at the local yarn store. I taught uh, American history at Linfield as an adjunct teacher. I worked at the news register as a reporter. They paid me 25 cents an inch. And was this because you needed money, because you needed an outlet for creativity? And Yeah, it was not enough money. In fact... It, it was because I needed an outlet. Yeah. Um, in fact, the last job I had was teaching at Linfield, and I really loved it. I managed to turn teaching one class into a full-time job and was a week ahead of my students in preparing. Um, I never taught the same class twice, so I was always in that position. But... They didn't pay me diddly squat, and I was needed at the vineyard, so um, I stopped. And in essence, you worked almost up until you became the vineyard manager. No, I worked until um, outside, until we started the winery, because at that time, Bill was still working in town, and so I ran the tasting room on weekends and did some work in the vineyard. That really brings me to... To the organization of Sokol Blosser in a certain sense, many of the people that started wineries were, in essence, home winemakers or enthralled with the idea of wine, and that's that's what they wanted to do. And it was largely guys, but in the couple, the, the guy was almost always the winemaker. That isn't what happened at Sokol Blosser. Right. And uh, I'll certainly ask Bill about that, but 
What led you, from your perspective, to go from planting grapes to deciding in 77 or before that that you wanted to be in the wine business, not just the grape business? Well, that was a big leap because our goal was to have a vineyard. And that's what interested Bill and interested me, was the agricultural part of it. And I look back and I think, you know, we were part of the back to the land movement of the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. A lot of young professionals were going back to the land. And we had enough of the Horatio Elger in us that we started a business instead of a commune. (laughs) But um, it was really my father who urged us to start a winery and was willing to invest in it when he saw we were serious uh, after four years. He was willing to invest, talk my brothers into investing. It was much faster than we would have done. Um, So he invested in the vineyard and then a few years later talked my brothers into starting the winery. Really pushed us. So I don't know if he hadn't, what would have happened? Mm. Um, and interesting, some of our friends at that point in the industry were the um, shareholders at Highland Vineyards, the founders, who never did have a winery, just had vineyards. And we um, socialized with them and traded information. They started about the same time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I I want to talk a little bit about, yes. because I think it's so interesting, when I look back and I look at what our lives were like then, just in everyday terms, we had a family phone. We actually had two phones. We had one in the bedroom and one in the kitchen. But it was one line. Nobody had individual phones. And it was a big deal when we got a little machine that took messages so people could actually leave messages instead of just, you know. We, um, our address was Route 2, Box 220M. Um, the roads weren't even named at the time. We had Bill's old 1954 Chevy pickup which we bought another car too, but he drove that to work and I drove the pickup. And I got used to never going any place um, without taking a backpack for Nick because the truck broke down a lot. And I, my new best friend at the time was the guy who had the garage in uh, Dayton got to know him and his little dog, who he always brought with him, uh, pretty well. I miss him. He was a great guy. We had orchards at the time. Oh, that's right. Um, And for many years, when I was running the orchards, we had harvest beginning with cherries and running through walnuts. In other words, we were in a constant state of harvest. four or five months. So it was a big deal. We slowly took them out. We had cherry, we had peaches, we had cherries, we had walnuts, we had Brooks prunes. Um, They were all, um, all took a lot of work. 
I actually miss them. <laughs> <laughs> and that work was being... Were either you and Bill involved with that work at the beginning? Well, of the yes. agricultural piece? Yes, we were. And we, we bought land, and this was something my father helped us with as he invested in the vineyards. We were able to buy contiguous land to our original property, and the, the farmer that we bought them from, Ted and Vernie Werfs, were really mentors to us. They became very good friends and helped us in so many ways. Um, although they were old school, conventional farmers, Ted used to complain that since they banned arsenic, he hadn't had a good um, good harvest of peaches. So makes you worry a little bit, doesn't yes. it? <laughs> yes. One of the continuing things that comes up as we're talking to these founding families is the role of women and also the difference between Washington County and Yamhill County. Because in Washington County, which was closer to Portland, the women of the wineries pretty quickly started meeting with each other because they realized they needed to be able to pull people out of Portland to come to events. Nobody had a tasting room per se, but they would set up a barrel in the garage or whatever it was that counted as a tasting room and they needed to come up with events of one kind or another to bring people out. And that wasn't what happened in Yamhill County. No, it sure wasn't. So the Yamhill County wineries did get organized, um, the Yamhill County Wineries Association. Um, early on, it was all the guys doing it, and there's this wonderful publicity photo of everybody with their sideburns and long hair, um, and it was all the guys. But the reality was that the women really was... Um, couples who made, who developed the industry. The guys couldn't have done it on their own. But the women, for the most part, um, saw themselves as the bench rather than the starters and accepted that role. I didn't like that role. And, and you recognized it at that time. It's not just looking back where... It's... Well, I can't say that I recognized how the extent to which we enabled that, but I certainly look back and can say I didn't want to be in the back seat. And so a good example of that is when Bill was able to leave CH2M and come into the winery full-time as president, I didn't want to work for him. I didn't want him to be my boss. Um, this was, you know, an equal, equal partnership. Um, so we looked for something that I could do. Well, what was there? There was the vineyard. And so I took over the vineyard steep learning curve. I mean, I'd been 
keeping the books and writing the checks, but and then I knew how to drive the tractor, but I was not managing the vineyard. And I learned how to do that. I learned how to operate all the equipment, how to load the trucks with a forklift on the back of the tractor. Um, I mean, just all the things that... What year was that, things. Susan? When that you would took have been that? 1980. So nine or ten years, depending on what we're counting. That's really early to have, yes. in essence, uh, taken a, a stance for an independent role for you. And that's, it certainly, I don't think what was going on in Washington County was happening any earlier than that. So, I mean, that... Well, it's interesting, David, that the women of Yamhill County didn't get together. They didn't. I don't know why. We all knew each other. Yeah. That's very, very interesting question. Yeah. Interesting observation. Well, and it's, I mean, part of it is driven by the closer proximity of Portland for the Washington County people. And the concept that that they imagined that people would come out. When did you build the tasting room? The first, the 1977. Stores? Right at the beginning? Yeah. Well, actually, mid, I think 78 is when it opened. Yeah. But you had you had conceived of that as part of the winery. Right. Was whose whose idea was that? I mean that's pretty out there. Well, yeah, it was, wasn't it? So Bill hired a consultant, I forget his name, from who had worked at Sterling Vineyards, and he told us you need a tasting room. He said, you might not make any money, but it's the best public relations tool you can have. So he said, okay. So somebody introduced us to John Storrs, who was very prominent architect at the time. And John was just intrigued by the idea of building a tasting room. Um, that's a whole story in itself, which I'm sure... Bill would be happy to tell you about. Um, so we ended up building a tasting room. It was the first designated tasting room um, in the Oregon industry. Some, you know, as opposed to there were other tasting areas, but they were converted garages. Right. right. So yes, it was a big deal, and it's made money. Contrary to the Contrary consultant. Contrary to the consultant. <laughs> well, certainly in Yamhill County, the push seemed to be more to, in terms of sales, was more toward getting distributors around the country. And many of us were accumulating distributors and selling no wine at the winery, maybe doing something on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, and if they were beating hard enough, maybe one other time of the year. But we were not focused on selling to consumers, which, as the consultant said, was important from a PR standpoint or a, a, a marketing standpoint, not just selling. 
Well, that's interesting that you say that because I thought we were. I thought that the big Thanksgiving tasting, the holiday tasting, the Memorial Weekend tasting, um, the maps that we did. Um, at one point, we had just a Yamhill County map. Yep. So I look at our trying to do this at least initially just on weekends. You know, we started off being open just on weekends and then closing during the winter and then being open all year and then being open seven days a week. Yeah. I want to look at a whole other aspect of what you have done, which is you did the jobs up until you started managing the vineyard. You went from managing the vineyard to eventually becoming president when Bill was sick and tired of all that. But you ran for the legislature on two different occasions. You, three different occasions, apparently can't count either. Um, three different occasions, as I was saying. Um, and you you were the first director of the International Pinot Noir Celebration. I mean, there's there's this whole other side of you that it may have to do with the wine business, but not your wine business. What, where did that come from? And was that always part of who you thought you were supposed to be or wanted to be? Well, first I have to say, I ran for the legislature so many times that people actually think I was in it. <laughs> That's happened to me. You know, people have referred to that a number of times. Um, I, it's true. I have always had a life outside of the winery. I was on the board of Merrillhurst College. I was on the board of OMSI. I was on the board of the Nature Conservancy. number of, of different organizations that were important to me. And I guess I've always had a community service uh, gene inside I don't know where it came from, but it's there. Um, were, were you doing, were you, I mean, were either of your parents involved in that way? No, that's why I say I don't know where it yeah. came from. Yeah. The Pinot Noir celebration, that came about because Bill was initially on the founding board of that. And I, I guess, followed that went to some board meetings, and it became clear to me that this was not going to go anywhere unless it had somebody who was going to take responsibility for making it happen. And so I offered to do it. Um, and it was a paid position. Not very much, but it was a paid position. And I, what I remember about that is that it was the way that that came about was really kudos to you and to David Lett, who were able to bring in the Burgundians, Burgundians and the California wineries. You were the guys who had the contacts, who had the international ability to get international players. Well, and I mean... Burgundy was its own story because, of course, Robert was 
without yes. public knowledge in the process of buying a piece of property not far from you. Us, yes. And when he had first come over the year before, I had told him that this was happening and would he consider coming? And and he didn't, he, he kind of wanted Burgundy to look good if here was an option and he was about to buy in. And as it turns out, one of his greatest fears is that we he would not be welcome, that he would be rejected and that we would... Um, hmm. I, I, it's an interesting yes. concept, but Veronique's told me this a number of times that he is he is so thankful to the Oregonians who welcomed him. Oh my goodness! And and here we were, we were so almost thrilled. on our hot hands and knees begging <laughs> him to yeah. Well, one of one of my favorite memories is he was so thoughtful to buy grapes from the surrounding wineries. And so when he had his first release, which was of these grapes, he had us all up there. And he made a little speech where he said, you know, our wines at that time, I think had gone from the initial $7.95 a bottle, our Pinot Noir, up to $14.95 a bottle maybe. And he said, I'm going to make a statement with the, this wine. Good Cabernet sells for a lot of money. Good Pinot, Oregon Pinot Noir should. I'm going to charge, I forget what it was, think, $29, $30 it a bottle. $36. $36 a think. bottle. And we just said, go, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> we were so excited because he could do that, right. and that would raise all boats. Um, so that, that's my favorite Drew Ann story. <laughs> but the Pinot Noir celebration really was something special. And, you know, there's so many little details for it. It was a celebration because the French didn't want to be included if it was a competition. And so he said, okay, it's going to be a celebration of one wine, Pinot Noir. How fabulous was that? We, one of the things that I loved doing as the uh, director was having the poster contest um, I had a friend who had a poster gallery of original posters. Posters were a big deal back then. And she helped me put this together. Um, we were able to get an office in the basement of the Chamber, McMinnville Chamber of Commerce building and you know, have a phone. And I had women who volunteered for me. My favorite, Margaret Revis, said, I'm Susan's slave. <laughs> she was fabulous. Um, so it all happened, and it came off, and people loved it. And look, it's still here. And I had such a sense of passing time when my son Alex became president of the board. Wow. A whole new generation. So that was 
The IPNC is very special and, as I say, owes really a great deal to your well, helping get it started. Well, I was going to say it owes a great deal to you, not only because of the role as director, but it seemed to me that the first person who mentioned anything about this was your first winemaker, Bob McRitchie, back when it was still going to be a competition and um, when the McMinnville Chamber of Commerce was sort of holding out uh, the idea that they might help sponsor an event at the beginning if uh, there was a wine event that people could come up with. I mean, I was I was unrelated to any of those initial conversations. I do remember having a fit about a competition, but uh, I, I'm sure I was not the only one. And But so much of this was guided by you and, and the people of your winery, um, and it's really, it was really a, a first of its kind event. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, there's, there are numerous imitations of that in New Zealand and in California. There are, um, and even in France, not, a, not with Pinot, but although they tried it once. Uh, but the idea of doing a long weekend, having a lot of focus, Certainly a lot of education, but for consumers, right? it was literally the first one as far as I can remember. Well, Sonoma Couture had their Chardonnay. Um, their one winery thing, or was it multiple uh, you wine? You know, I'm trying to remember. Huh. Bill might remember. But we'll have was, to ask Bryce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in any case, I, it, uh, this one is beloved, and it was because yes. it's, it, it started the way it did and was inclusive. And something else that was very Oregonian about it was when it became clear that there were way more Oregon wineries that wanted to participate yes. than we had room for, those of us who were the oldsters said, we, we will rotate, and to show you how this works, we will be the ones to step out first. Right. And that set the tone, too. Um, And then one more IPNC story is that when it was originally conceived, the idea was we would have it in Oregon, and then after a year or two, we'd have it in France, and then we'd have it in California. So it would rotate. So after a year or two, I don't remember who did this, you might remember, said to the French, it's your turn. And they said... Are you kidding? We barely even talk to each other. We can't do this. And no, Roz, Roz, Sess, Roz and Jacques Sess left the second IPNC. I don't think they thought it was a sign, but knowing that they really wanted to do it in Burgundy, and it, it was not only that a lot of the, the winemakers don't talk to each other, where would they get the volunteers? Oh, I mean, so much of IPNC's success is the way you were able to recruit and keep such a workforce of people that just just were so in love with the idea of being part of that. Well, the first year, what I love, we had so many volunteers, and people had no idea that they were having their water glasses filled by the sheriff of Yamhill County and the head of the bank. I mean, it was everybody participated. Yeah. 
It, it was, was really a community event in those days. It was a community event, yeah. yes. Well, we ought to do this for the next couple of uh, decades because this is really a lot of fun. Um, part of what is so fun about this is that I'm hearing stories for the first time that have existed as part of our past, but I either didn't know why or where it was coming from. Um, so I am so pleased that... Uh, we were able to spend time together today, Susan. Well, me too. I want to say one one more thing mm. about, I suppose, feminism, um, is that one of the things I'm really grateful for is that Bill always encouraged me. He encouraged me to take over the vineyard. Um, he was willing to let me be president, um, a position I never would have been hired for based on experience. And when I did start full-time in the vineyard, he said, since you're working full-time now, um, or close to full-time and taking care of the kids, um, I think we should share the cooking. So we started I'd cook dinners one week, and then he'd cook dinners one week. And I have to say, this raised the level of food in our house. It was a competition? It was uh, unspoken competition. <laughs> but um, that I really appreciated that. I thought that was a really generous gesture. Well, and to carry on from your point, the, the sexual roles in the 70s I mean, I look back at that and cringe. They are very different today in the wine industry. I mean, your daughter and your son are co-presidents today. Their jobs are very distinct. Um, there are other wineries where it isn't necessarily two siblings that are presidents, but maybe a couple. But sometimes it is the woman that is the winemaker. Mm-hmm. And that that wouldn't have happened um, at the time of the founding. And there were a couple of women in California that were winemakers, and Lynn Penner-Ash became a winemaker, I think, in 86 or 7. I don't mm-hmm. remember the exact year, which is pretty early. But nothing like today, where it's clearly, if that's what you'd like to do, you can do it. Right, right. Well, we've come a long way. No question about that. There's still a long way to go. Yeah. Are you resting on your laurels yet? Well, I don't see them as laurels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us are in, in, in that respect. Susan, thank you for opening a bottle of wine and for sharing well, so many thoughts. to you, David. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com slash 50 years, to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.